This episode of I Save That Podcast is brought to you by 2020 AVA Enterprise Partner, Teleflex. Teleflex is a global leader focused on reducing vascular-related complications through world-class solutions designed to equally benefit clinicians and patients. Their goal is to provide intuitive products and consultative programs that improve procedural efficiencies, patient outcomes, and healthcare economic value to advance care in vascular access. For more information, visit www.teleflex.com. You have arrived at Season 3, Episode 4 of the I Save That Podcast. Happy summer, everyone. This is Eric Seger, AVA Director of Communications and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. Welcome back to the show. As always, I'm joined by Judy Thompson, AVA's Director of Clinical Education. Hello, Judy. How are you? What's going on? Hi, Eric. It's great to talk to you again and everybody else out there and about in vascular access land. It's summertime and 2020 is here. I can't wait for 2021. I think a lot of people would agree with that sentiment. But before we get into that, uh, in this episode, uh, we're going to speak, well, I individually uh, later will speak with authors of the CE article in the upcoming summer issue of JAVA, which is set to publish next week, both online on our brand new journal website. I invite everyone to go take a look at that at avajournal.com. And it will also be shipped to all AVA members and journal subscribers uh, to your mailbox. But first, Judy and I would like to welcome a very, very special guest, Dr. Joe El-Hujiri. Dr. Joe is an internal medicine and a hospitalist at Memorial Hospital in Jasper, Indiana. And he is here to chat with us today about his experience with the COVID-19 virus. Welcome, Dr. Joe. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Great to great have, to have you, here. you here. Yes. And we also have 2020 Ava Director at Large and a former coworker of Dr. Joe El-Hujiri at Memorial Hospital, Tanya Heim, on the show with us. Glad to have you back on the show, Tanya. Welcome. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have both of you on the show. One, to talk about, um, Dr. Joe, your experience with COVID-19, but also, I know we did a little talk right before, and we won't get into it today, but I want to grab you guys for another podcast at some point about the collaboration that went on between you two, between Dr. Joe as a hospitalist and Tanya at, when you were the CNO at the hospital and what type of collaborative experience you guys had. But that's another show. Um, I just want to put a teaser out there because I think what you guys had done is absolutely amazing and, and something to emulate. But before we get into that, and again, we'll schedule that later. Um, Dr. Joe, thank you so much again for agreeing to be on our show today. It, um, we were, Tanya introduced you to us and let us know that you not only cared for patients with COVID, but you actually contracted the virus. And Correct. I'd love to hear just you talk a little bit about what happened, what that experience was, and then we'll have a couple follow-up questions for you. Sure. Um, as you guys know, like uh, this pandemic started um, six months ago, but uh, we got hit pretty much like three months ago. Uh, in our area, and uh, I took care of patients with COVID-19, and uh, like everybody, I was, you know, following all the precautions, uh, having my protective isolation, my PPEs on and everything, but things happen, and you never know. I got it from the hospital. I got it from Walmart. I got it from any, you know, any place. It's hard to tell, but uh, it was really like, you know, a strange experience for me. I've never experienced 
illness like this. Um, I mean, in summary, um, it started like not feeling well, feeling weak, fatigued. Uh, something's wrong, not right. So I felt, well, that could be, um, you know, coronavirus. What could be wrong in this pandemic other than coronavirus everybody's talking about? So I ended up, I ended up getting tested, and uh, my test came back negative. So that kind of confused me a little bit. In the beginning, we didn't know really about the testing sensitivities and specificities. We did not know how accurate those tests are. So we believed the test at that time, but I continued not feeling well. Um, a week later, you know, I started to have more symptoms, so to speak, and uh, basically started to have more weakness. But in addition, I started having body aches. I don't know you guys probably had the flu or somebody uh, experienced that, but that's way, way different. It's like, I would say the flu times five or six. Uh, I mean, generalized body aches, uh, I would say uh, at least three or four out of 10 all, all the time. And then at night, it gets even worse. I start having like joint pain, like my right hip is hurting and I lay on my left side, my left hip starts hurting and wakes me up. I, was taking Tylenol. Uh, fever, though, people say they have fever all the time, but mine, I think, it wasn't all the time. In the beginning, I didn't have much fever. It was maybe low-grade, 99, 99.5. I didn't have a fever above 100 in the beginning. But, you know, after uh, 7 to 10 days, I started to have fever. And I spiked like 101, 102 fever. And then when I, I started to become more symptomatic, uh, in addition to the body aches and the uh, joint pain at night, my fever started to spike, and I felt really worse. Uh, more weakness, uh, more fatigue, appetite. Uh, people talk about you know loss of taste and appetite. I did not lose completely my taste. I continued to, to you know taste things, but they tasted different for sure. Um, like nothing tasted good. To be honest with you, I was forcing myself to eat. I was, you know, I, I needed to have good calorie intake, so I was forcing myself to eat um, as much as I can. But I don't believe I was eating more than than, than a thousand calorie a day, uh, which is half what what I need or even less. So I started to lose weight, poor appetite, tried to like hydrate myself, and um, still continued to feel poorly. Um, I ended up getting tested again, and my test came back positive. So part of me felt that's a good thing. Now I know what's wrong with me. The first test was negative, kind of confused me, clouded me, like what's wrong, what's going on. Um, as uh, time passes, I started to feel even worse. In addition to the muscle aches and the body aches and the joint pain and uh, fatigue, I started getting out of breath. And that got me a little bit concerned. You know, I'm a physician. I work with patients all the time um, and pretty healthy. I don't have uh, any medical problems. So I, you know, exercise. I I never get winded. Typically, I can go like five, six flights of stairs and uh, without stopping even. And uh, I barely get winded. This time, I'm going to the bathroom like 10 steps. I have to catch my breath. So something wasn't wasn't right. Um, I ended up coming to the hospital, and I got checked, and uh, they did x-rays, and I started to have uh, early pneumonia or signs of infiltrate, basically meaning signs of infection in my lungs. And I know at that time, I was already, you know, tested positive. 
And uh, I got concerned, to be honest with you. You know, it's not something easy. We see it all the time. We watch the news. Young people, they are in the, in the hospital for uh, COVID-19 infection. Things are getting worse with them. Some of them are dying. It's just stressful. It was very stressful at that time. I got a little bit concerned, uh, worried. But at the same time, I felt, well, I'm healthy. I should be okay. I should pull through this. Uh, one night, I felt really bad. Uh, I had a pulse oximeter at home, so I was checking my oxygen, and it was dropping to the 80s range. My heart rate was 130, 140. I got really concerned at that time when I came to the hospital, so that's what drove me to the hospital. Uh, I got admitted. Uh, my partners are great. They took care of me. Uh, we consulted with the pulmonologist and infectious disease doc here at Memorial, and uh, they, they, were, they did an awesome job. They were very helpful. The nurses were awesome. Everybody was great here, as usual. So uh, I got treated without going into details. At that time, hydroxychloroquine and Zipromax were like, you know, big deal. So I took those medications. Whether they helped me or I could have done okay without them, it's hard to tell. But I took them at that time. It was, you know, very uh, popular and things were different than what is now. I, I don't think now it's recommended anymore. But anyway, I got hospitalized for five days, and uh, three, four days after being in the hospital, I started to feel better and get more energy in me. I got some fluid and good nutrition, and I started to feel better. Uh, we decided, you know, it's it's okay for me to go home. Uh, I went home. I still not not being myself. Uh, the fatigue continued, the muscle ache continued, but definitely, I would say, uh, 50 or 60% better than it was the week before. Continued to improve, uh, slowly but steady improvement, the right direction. I would say from the, the time my symptoms started till uh, I got worse, I would say 10 to 14 days. That's the peak uh, when I felt really bad. And then after day 14, I started to feel better, uh, slowly but steady. Uh, I mean, a week later, uh, day 20, 21, I was running again. I was feeling pretty much back to normal, but I was still feeling exhausted, like no energy. I would say it took me a good three to four weeks to get back on my feet and being back to normal. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, mild, moderate, severe symptoms, I would say mine were like mild to moderate. I would not say they were mine were severe. I did not require a lot of oxygen, maybe two or three liters at the hospital, which is not much. Uh, and I did not uh, go to the ICU intensive care unit. I did not need ventilator support or anything like that. So that's was a good thing. Um, but yeah, that's it pretty much in summary uh, what happened uh, with my uh, COVID-19 infection. That was a, an exceptional description of what you went through. I kept writing notes of things I wanted to ask you about, but as you went on, you answered each and every one of them. So thank you. Did you You're get, <laughs> did you afterwards have any antibody testing to see if you, um, if you perhaps are immune? No, I did not. And, uh, you know, I'm the type of physician, I believe if you're feeling good, you're back to normal, why to do those testing? Um, we know that uh, a lot of people will, develop, will have immunity. And uh, studies are showing 
now it's too early really to have any conclusion whether the antibodies are, I mean, are helping even. Uh, people are, they tested positive for antibodies and they still are at risk of acquiring the infection and people, they say it's, it's not as bad as the first time. It's very uncommon, I think, to, be, to get COVID-19 twice, but I've heard of those cases. Uh, we're not sure even if the, the immunity will protect you 100%. But in general, all the experts are saying if, if you get it once, you're very unlikely to get it second time in a short period of time. Um, they are talking about, I know they say like three to six months, but honestly, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, to answer the question, I did not get tested for the antibodies. And uh, I'm the type of physician, if, you, if the patient is feeling well, feeling great, there is no need to keep worrying about those tests unnecessarily. I like the way you think. <laughs> and I know, yeah. you know, you, you described your symptoms very well. And I know they vary from patient to patient, person to person. It's, um, you know, finding out how you, you first started identifying what is fascinating. Because I have talked to other people that their first thing was lack of taste. Or um, it's, that's part of this, another scary part of this, this disease I know I was talking to my son just a couple of days ago and he gets seasonal al allergies every year, but this year his seasonal allergies started and all of a sudden he looks at me and he's 25 um, and he looks at me and goes, do you think it's COVID? I said, no, I think it's the grass, um, but it's scary this time in, in our lives right now because anything people get is our immediate brain goes to COVID when we know there's hundreds of thousands of other little bugs out there that can make us ill. You, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the media, I would say they, they blow it a little bit out of proportion. I get it. I mean, it's a big thing. It's a pandemic. It's killing a lot of people. And I feel so bad for everybody that died from COVID-19. It's, it's a terrible disease. I would not underestimate it at all. I mean, it's, it's a bad, bad infection. And I can see like how people could die from it, specifically the elderly one and vulnerable with poor health condition. I'm a healthy guy. Like how can an 80 year old living at the nursing home, pushing her walker and barely can make it to the table, can, could sustain a three or four weeks of illness like that? It's hard. It's very hard. Um, that's why the death rate is higher than the elderly. And I agree with you. A lot of people get scared and a lot of people start like feeling, well, is it COVID-19? I have a little bit of fever. I feel hot. Can you, you know, check my temperature? I know I've seen it, you know, my family even. Uh, I think uh, none of them got it. I think my daughter got it. We tested her. She's two years old. It was hard to test her. She was like crying. So we didn't get enough sample. So the sample was not enough what we got from her swab. Oh. It was insufficient, but she had fever when I was sick for four days and poor thing, we quarantined her with her grandma for like 10 days. It was hard. It was very hard uh, for her as well, but she did okay. Four days, she had fever like the flu or any common virus infection and she bounced really out of it very quickly. And, um, and, and that's the case with a lot of children. And I think you, you guys probably heard it before that kids are not getting infected much. And a lot of studies 
still, they don't know exactly why, but part of it, I believe, uh, there are special receptors in our lungs that are not matured enough, the, the angiotensin uh, receptors in, in the certain types of cells inside the lungs are not matured enough to acquire that virus and get it inside the lungs causing the pneumonia and the ARDS and the SARS people talking about. Um, and that's probably what's protecting the kids. They're not getting uh, pneumonia from it. They may be getting febrile illness, weakness for a few days, and they are fine. Uh, on the other hand, adults and elderly, they are vulnerable. And uh, I, I think there is a difference between the genetic variation. Um, one person may have a lot of those receptors in their lungs, and they may get pneumonia more or more vulnerable to pneumonia, so to speak, than other people. Uh, believe it or not, it's, it's very it's very interesting. The more I read about it, the more I find. And in summary, I don't think anybody knows exactly. But uh, the other day I was reading an article. Uh, not every, I mean, some people believe that 30% of the people will never get infected, even if they get even if they get exposed to it. They, some people believe that uh, getting exposed to the common cold, coronavirus could cause common cold 5% of the time, but not this one, not the one that happened about 17 or 18 years ago, and not the COVID-1. Now, this one, we refer to it as coronavirus type 2 causing the SARS. Um, coronavirus that causes common cold, they say like it, it may cause common cold 5% of the time. So people that got infected with corona, the, the, the good coronavirus, not the good, I mean the, the benign coronavirus, they may develop immunity and it could protect them. Some people say also genetically speaking, um, people have, you know, uh, well-differentiated T cells, which are um, special cells in our body uh, to, to attack the viruses and uh, help us, you know, get rid of them quickly. We call them T helper cells. Um, some people have developed those T helper cells genetically, and they are very smart and very effective. They knock any viral infection quickly. So, I mean, there are a lot of factors playing a role how this is spreading and why this person got exposed and they didn't get it. And, oh, gosh, I swear to God, this person was infected. He, they live with 10 people and nobody got infected. I mean, you, I hear those stories, and there is explanation definitely uh, for everything. Well, I can, I can say, I, like, that's a lot of really great insight, Dr. Joe, but you talking about your two-year-old daughter really hit home with me. I, I'm a new dad. I, my daughter is three months old. And I think while I, the pediatrician that we take her to had said a lot of the similar things that you just did about the the little ones and how they handle it because maybe they're not fully developed yet or anything along that, along those lines, but it's still like as a, as a parent, and I'm sure that you can attest to this as well as all of us can on, on this show today is just the fear of the unknown and you, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, so that's for me personally, I try to take the proper precautions when I do go out and do things and come back and just try to sanitize because, you know, I, I'd hate to have my daughter who is not, even, <laughs> hasn't been in this world for a year yet you know, to, to have to deal with something that awful by, by getting sick. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, so Joe, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be the case that you had three generations in your home. Is that uh -huh. still 
So when you yes. got sick, how did you manage that? Yeah, I didn't talk about the rest of my family. Uh, my family is pretty decent size. I have my dad who's 85 years old. He lives with me. I have uh, my uh, mother-in-law who has, you know, with the kids. Uh, she's great. My wife and uh, four kids. I was really concerned about my dad the most because statistically speaking, he is the one at risk of having trouble, you know. Um, I stayed away from him as much as I can. It was super hard. Uh, I mean, every night I usually go to my dad's room, spend some time with him. It was really hard. I was like avoiding that and talking to him like at least 10 feet away. Uh, it was super hard, super hard. But I told them that please bear with me. We're going to get through this. Uh, you're going to be fine. It is. It was a rough time. I remember those. Oh gosh, getting emotional. It wasn't easy. Not like able to hug my daughter and going through this was hard. You can hear that in your voice. And yeah, I've I've been preparing for a webinar that I'm doing with another organization and doing interviews with not people that have had it. So this is really valuable for me. But clinicians that have cared for patients with COVID. And the psychological effects of what they saw patients go through and the pain and the, the worry. And then to top it all off, not being able to have any support with them at the hospital for the, the patients themselves, because the patients are on their own, um, because families aren't allowed in. So the psychological effect of this kind of just compounds of the physical effect of it from everything I've heard. I totally agree. And let me brush on that a little bit. Um, we took care of a lot, few. I would personally, I took care of a few patients with COVID-19 that tested positive uh, before and after my infection. So before my infection, I was, what you just said is 100% accurate description. I was like afraid to get, you know, in close contact with the patient. I was trying to, to protect myself. At the same time, I want to take care of the patient. I want to be compassionate, caring. I want to reassure to them that everything will be okay. I want to be, you know, but at the same time, I can't like be close to them physically. So that was before. But after my infection, I felt a little bit relaxed. Uh, in that regard, part of me felt, well, I'm immune now. I can get it twice. And the other thing is I felt bad for those patients. I've been through this. I know how it feels. I know how people look at you, even they, they love you and they care about you, but they don't want to get close to you so that they don't get it, get the infection. I totally understand that. So I was really like telling my story to those patients and reassuring to them, look at me, I'm okay, you're going to be okay. And uh, it was a good thing. Uh, you know, I used my experience to help them get through this. But I totally understand what you just described. It's devastating for a lot of people, like that isolation and uh, quarantining people, and you can't see your family. I mean, it, it drives you crazy. I mean, can you imagine put yourself in a room uh, between four walls for uh, 10 to 14 days? Uh, it's hard. It's hard. Even in the hospital, you see people trying to come in and out, see you without, like, having close contact with you. And all of them, like, you know, with gowns and uh, goggles and gloves and, oh, my gosh. Uh, we are, you know, in the medical field, we, we are used to that. But for someone that's not used to that, it is hard. It's devastating. Yeah, for sure. But even as healthcare professionals, we, 
part of the reason we go into it is because we are compassionate people. And the fact that I'm afraid to go into a room because I don't want to catch what you have. And then I think what you bring to the table now or bring to the bedside, I should say, is, you know, you have lived that experience and what a blessing for your patients to be able to hear your story and feel your compassion for them and that you've lived a day in their shoes or lived a month in their shoes, I should say, but it's, Oh boy, what an experience. I, um, how do you can't imagine the emotions? Yeah. Emotional. Um, Yeah. I was choking up listening to you. It's, um, (laughs) when we see the, the United States now and the world opening up more and everybody was hypervigilant and now we see, you know, not only do we have COVID, but we have the unrest and with racism in the United States and people are out and about protesting without masks and not taking social distancing to heart. What's your feelings with that? Having gone through this, this disease process? I feel bad for them. Uh, and I'm afraid that will affect our numbers. We, we've been doing really well in the last few weeks, uh, and I'm expecting this is going to affect it. Uh, I mean, God bless their heart. I don't want to go into politics um, and what's going on, but back to the COVID-19 infection and pandemic, I think people should be like smart and they should continue to follow the precautions and the social distancing and everything. It will be the new norm, at least for a little bit, through the summer, I would say, and everybody will be okay. Uh, we're not asking people, you know, extreme measures. We're asking them just stay six feet away, put your mask on, sanitize your hands. That's it. I mean, it's not impossible to do that. But people get emotional with the rallies and the protesters, and they they don't follow the precautions. And this is this is not a good thing. I think it's going to affect us and we're going to see a little bit of increase in COVID-19 infection and spread. Uh, now, back to the opening of the country, of course, it's a political decision as well as, you know, the CDC and everybody is involved and they are, I think, I believe they are making the right decisions. Um, at the same time, you need to look at it from different angle. Uh, economically speaking, the country has been pretty much uh, negatively affected, and uh, everybody has been struggling. Uh, it's not it's not easy. So at the same time, you gotta balance these two things. What to do? Like keep the country closed and shut down. And but I think the smartest way to deal with it is uh, follow the precautions and open the country mm-hmm. and slowly and keep monitoring things and uh, take actions when needed. I couldn't agree more. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish people would just follow those simple precautions. You have three things in our bundle. Wear a mask, social distance, and wash your hands. And if we could just all do that and not think we were losing civil liberties by doing it, I just want to, I want my loved ones and myself and you to stay alive and not put a giant impact on our hospital systems. But um, it's a tough time right now in our world, but hearing your story and hearing what you've gone through and fortunately you, your family was safe through all the time that you spent at your home while you were, you were fighting this. It's, it, it gives all of us hope. 
So I, I couldn't thank you more for being on our show today and I appreciate your time and um, keep up the good work. I, I would love to be one of your patients if I had to, if I had to. I don't really want to be your patient, to be honest. But <laughs> well, I hope you you don't need me or any other physician. Um, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys for your time and thanks for including me in this uh, podcast. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you for your time. Thank you so much, Doctor Joe. For additional clinical education opportunities, register today at Teleflex Academy. Build your skills with programs by and for clinicians. Many programs offer education contact hours. Learn at your own pace with on-demand webinar and e-learning content. Visit Teleflex Academy at www.teleflex-academy.com. And welcome back to Season 3, Episode 4 of the I Save That podcast. This is Eric Sager, Director of Communications for AVA and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. Joining me for this episode's Beyond the Manuscripts segment is Sarah Santucci and Dr. Scott Tertola, the two authors of the continuing education article for the summer issue of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. That article is titled Nursing Placed Midline Catheter and Ultrasound Guided Peripheral IVs Promote More Appropriate Catheter Selection. Sarah, Dr. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your backgrounds and what you do in the vast healthcare world. I'm a medical student, so I'm a rising fourth year now. In terms of the healthcare world, I do mostly medical student things, which means rotating through various different departments. Uh, right now, I'm supposed to be on my sub-internship in internal medicine, which has continued to be delayed first due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic and now due to rioting. Um, that's what I would be doing. Uh, otherwise, I, I do research. Um, I've been involved in COVID-19 um, telehealth and volunteering programs recently. Um, and my hobbies include plant growing. Nice. I'm the chief of vascular and interventional radiology at the University of Pennsylvania and also the chief of uh, quality for the Department of Radiology. I have had an interest in venous access for a very, very long time, and have been the uh, physician leader of the venous access team, which is our floor-based uh, nursing venous team uh, since its inception uh, almost 20 years ago. Wow, that's quite the career. Well, we're, we're glad to have you both on the show. So let's dive in a little bit with your, your manuscript. It analyzes how PICs and midline catheters and ultrasound-guided PIVs are placed by, you know, a nursing-based vascular access team and how that influenced venous catheter selection and how it impacted DVT and CLAB-C rates. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how you put together this idea um, to do this analysis? Yeah, I can I can start with that. So at, we, we work at the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania, and we're lucky there to have a really very skilled venous access team, or VAT. Um, they're trained in ultrasound guidance for PICs, midlines, and peripheral IVs. Uh, and they've been really good about their record keeping. So we have this amazing data set of every single, um, almost every single PIC, midline, and uh, peripheral IV that they put in. Um, so this data set over, you know, well over a decade has allowed us to go back and look at um, how incrementally adding all these different modalities have um, changed the way um, 
they select uh, venous catheters. So that obviously is quite the undertaking. <laughs> you mentioned over a decade, and I think in your paper you wrote it was like the you looked at cases starting all the way back in two thousand and one. You know, yeah, it's tell almost me more about that. Now. Yeah, tell me more about that. How that sounds like it would take forever, honestly. Well, I obviously wasn't around. <laughs> I wasn't at the Perlman School of Medicine or University of Pennsylvania in the early two thousands, obviously. Um, but as you mentioned, this, this team was started in the early 2000s uh, with help from the interventional radiology department. Um, and like I said, from the very beginning, they were keeping great records. Um, they were very well trained. They started out placing picks, uh, as I believe a lot of the venous access as teams did, as uh, the increased demand uh, for picks continued to grow. Um, so I think they originally started to uh, shift the burden of pick placement from IR. Um, and nurses offered, you know, a, a cost-effective and a time-efficient way to place these catheters bedside. Well, you know, I think pretty much everybody in the venous access world, and certainly your world, knows the success stories that, that picks have been. Uh, when I right. first got mm -hmm. to the pen, we had one room dedicated all day, every day, to placing picks uh, with uh, no, no nursing team, and they were waiting two weeks to get a pick placed, and they had to negotiate if they wanted to get one put in sooner than that, that they would have to take somebody else off the list. And obviously that wasn't, that wasn't remotely tenable. And you know, I, got, I was lucky enough to get together with a, a great uh, vascular access nurse, and uh, he and I put together the team, and the result was a spectacular success from the standpoint of patient satisfaction, availability, referring satisfaction, that all those backlogs disappeared to where we very quickly got to the point of having nearly 100% delivery of the appropriate venous access device by 48 hours. And so you all know this, I and mean, this is what this is what the success story is. The real difference here is that what we as we saw the explosion of picks, we realized that there were other alternatives that might be able to be suitable without having to go to picks or without having to go even to go to midline. And we originally thought that we would try to train everybody on every floor to do ultrasound guided IVs. Uh, that project actually didn't work, to be honest. There just wasn't enough interest. But what did work was getting the Venus Access team to start it and then to gradually teach it to, uh, to, to people who were interested on selected floors where there was very high need for ultrasound guided IVs. And that combined with the midlines and the picks and all of the key parameters that Sarah has described, that's the, the success story. That's the thing that's so beautiful about it is that it's a, you know, it's a long saga, but it's, it's a saga of evolution and adapt, adaptation to the needs, for example, reducing CLABSI by going to midline. Most definitely. It sounds like there was great lines of communication between you know, all parties involved with that. There's really no other way that something like that could get done, I think, without, you know, working together um, so seamlessly. Now, I know we talked about this briefly before we started recording. You had a few, there were a few months where there was no data um, for what you wanted to do. You know, how did you combat that? I'm not sure exactly why we missed the data. I think it may have been a time when um, the the head of the nursing head of the Venus Access team changed and somehow um, maybe the computer wasn't backed up. Uh, but 
to combat that statistically, I did do uh, a t-test paired by month. So to compare the years, I would exclude the months that were missing um, uh, in any year that I compared it to. So I had the, the same right. months to compare it to by year. Right. Sure. That makes sense. Sarah, Sarah's exactly right. That, that it was during the transition uh, from one leader to the next that we that we lost a few uh, data data points. The, the nice thing about the data set is that it's so robust that you're you know you can interpolate data and not have it be a problem. Yeah, still tens of thousands. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I've seen those numbers as everyone will when they read your study and they see this vast array of the cases that you looked at and say it might be all right if you miss a month or two but it's not exactly a, a small sample size if you will so um they, that's great now were there any other you know problems or issues that you ran into you know during this analysis yeah so you already touched on the fact that there were, we were interested on uh whether this reduction in picks that we saw would um pan out in terms of central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs, as well as upper extremity DVTs. Um, unfortunately, at the, you know, in the early 2000s, we didn't have like an internal framework for recording these. So we're relying on our EMR and pulling just the diagnosis code, for example, for the upper extremity DVTs. And we're relying on the, the federally mandated reported CLABSI data. Uh, so for the CLABSI data, um, there, was a, there was a change in reporting that increased it nationwide. Um, so that made analyzing that data a little difficult. Uh, and the upper extremity DVT data, um, there was a study from another institution that suggested about a third of hospital um, upper extremity DVTs were due to PICS. Uh, and we thought that would be sufficient to cover up noise from other causes of upper extremity DVT, um, but that may not be the case as our data was pretty noisy and actually increased over time if you're able to get any trend from it at all. Right. So when, you know, our subscribers and AVA members read your data, review your data, look at the trends, their conclusions with your study, you know, what's kind of the biggest takeaway that you want them to have after they finish reading? I think it's, I think, I, ho I hope readers see the value of having a Venus access team that can place midlines, picks, and ultrasound guided peripheral IVs. I think they have unmatched expertise, both in just placement and knowing the indications for these different Venus access devices, um, which will safeguard against overuse of one or the other. So making sure that patients get just exactly what they need, not more, not less. And I would, I would just add to that that, of course, your readership are many, if not all of them, are experts in picks in particular. And I'm sure many, if not most of them, have branched out into these other areas. But it's really the, the concept of the, uh, the nursing Venus Access team as a consultant for Venus Access devices as, as really being the, the oracle for what the right device is at the right time. And, you know, we pretty much apply the magic framework to that document. It's a fantastic document. And it's very rare that they have to call me because they're so expert at this and able to choose the right device at the right time for the right patient. And then having the, the physician leadership when they need it and the communication and connection with IR to just back them up, that, that's, it's the, the teamwork that's so important here. 
For sure. There's that conversation, you know, you use the phrase, the right device for the right patient at the right time. You know, I, I read that all the time. I hear that all the time from clinicians. That's, you know, what they want to make their top priority. So, but it's easier said than done most times as, you know, you touched on there. So I think that, you know, great data that you all have, and the research that you did and the analysis that you did can kind of go and support that. Definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I just wanted to thank you both again. If there's anything, anything else, any other closing thoughts? Uh, otherwise, I'll, I'll let you go. Um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today for the podcast and stay safe over there in Philly with the, the pandemic as well as the social um, unrest as well going on. So thank you both. Thank you. Stay safe thank as well. You. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org slash podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of, of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.